It took me quite a long time to, to develop a voice, and now that I have it, I'm not going to be silent. I have been so blessed. It is incumbent on me to really get in there and, and help to make a difference for other people. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I am your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. I had the honor of interviewing former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in 2010. Along with so many others, I was saddened to hear that she passed away last week at the age of 84. Secretary Albright was a passionate and longtime champion for so many values at the forefront of our consciousness right now, equality, justice, democracy, and peace. And of course, as we close out Women's History Month, she made an indelible mark on U.S. history as our first female Secretary of State, which also made her the highest ranking woman in the history of American government at the time. In her later years, Secretary Albright continued to stay active, projecting her important voice into world affairs, chairing the international strategic consulting firm she co-founded, the Albright Stonebridge Group, authoring seven New York Times bestselling books, as well as teaching as a professor in the practice of diplomacy at Georgetown University. As the world mourns her passing and celebrates her incredible life and legacy, I am so honored to share my archival recording of her inspiring interview with you today. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. I, I've spent a lot of time looking through your books, and I've been looking at the Read My Pins book, which is just uh, pretty amazing. This exhibition at the Smithsonian it features over 200 of your pins. You know, what story does it tell? Well, what I think it really tells is anybody can do this, because many of the pins are costume jewelry that were inexpensive that I kind of found in different places, flea markets and souvenir shops, and that one can truly express oneself through that form of art. They're icebreakers in many ways. For me, it also tells a foreign policy story. I think if you have uh, read my books, you know that my niche is basically trying to make foreign policy less foreign and have people understand how interesting it can be, and the pins are a vehicle for doing that. Yeah, it seems like we could use more creative ways of, of doing that. Now, I've, I've read that it all started with Saddam Hussein and a snake pin. It did. I mean, I, I say that this book would never have happened if it hadn't been for Saddam Hussein, because I do like jewelry, but I went up to New York to be the U.S. ambassador in 1993, and it was after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire had been translated into a series of Security Council resolutions that kept coming due one after another. So we talked about Iraq a lot. And uh, my instructions, because I was an instructed ambassador, was to say perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein all the time, which I thought he deserved because he'd invaded sovereign country, Kuwait. So what happened was all of a sudden there was a poem that appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. And I had a snake pin, and so I wore it when we talked about Iraq. And then one time I was out there talking to the press, and the camera kind of zeroed in and said, why are you wearing that snake pin? And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out, actually, and I did buy a lot of costume jewelry. And 
I decided to wear whatever it was that I thought we were going to do or what kind of a mood I was in. And when people asked me about that, when I wore a flower or a balloon or butterflies, that was a good day. And when I was wearing some kind of horrible bug or carnivorous animal, that was a bad day. So I said, read my pins. That's how it started. It's so great. There are actually so many great stories. Do you have any, you know, personal favorite or most memorable, you know, anecdote involving your pins that stands out to you? Well, one that I really like is a heart that I wear every Valentine's Day, except this one because it was in the exhibit. And people say, well, where'd you get that? And I say, well, my daughter made it. And then people will say, well, how old is your daughter? And she's been 20, 25, 30, 35, <laughs> 40. And she said, Mom, you've got to tell them I made it when I was five. Aww. So Katie's heart I like a lot. And I um, like my Secretary of State eagle pin because that one was very significant to me. I didn't think I would buy it until I didn't believe I'd be Secretary of State. And so... I said to myself, if by some miracle I became Secretary of State, I would go buy it. So that's one that I love. And then one that is at the end of the book that is particularly meaningful, I call it the Katrina pin. And what happened was I was down in New Orleans about three years after Hurricane Katrina, and I was appearing at the D-Day Museum, and I was at a dinner afterwards, and this young man comes over to me and he says, my father's sitting over there, he's a, a veteran and he earned two Purple Hearts and he gave my mother this pin for their 50th wedding anniversary, but she died as a result of Katrina and we want you to have it. And I opened the box up and it's these two amethysts and I thought, I said, I can't possibly accept this. And they said, no, you have to. It would be really, really meaningful to us, and we know our mother would like you to have it. And so that one is really very meaningful, the Katrina pin. Mm, it's amazing, all the different human interactions that this can sort of provoke. As you know, a diplomat, you've had so much experience traveling the world and sort of interacting with people of all cultures and nationalities. What commonalities do you see between all people, and like, what insights do you have on how to forge relationships with people of different perspectives? Well, the thing that I learned as a diplomat, I mean, the, the truth is that the human relations ultimately make a huge difference. And no matter what message you are about to deliver somewhere, whether it's one of holding out a hand of friendship or making clear that you disapprove of something that's happened, in many ways you realize that the person sitting across from you from the table is a human being. And so what you do is try to figure out some way to establish common ground. And it does happen to some extent, even at the beginning of the toughest conversations. The part that's interesting is that in some ways the pins helped because I would be in some meeting and somebody either... I would be given a pin by some other foreign minister, or the person would ask, why are you wearing that one? But I do believe that in order to be a successful negotiator, that is a diplomat, you have to be able to put yourself into the other person's shoes. Unless you can understand what is motivating them, you're never going to be able to try to figure out how to solve a particular problem.
Speaking of that, one of the, your books that I thought was so important was The Mighty and the Almighty, you know, Reflections on America, God, and World Affairs, about the role that religion should play in our foreign policy. And I'm always very, you know, it's such a delicate issue, and yet it seems so kind of infiltrated in so many of the conflicts and problems that are facing the world. I found an interview that you did with Time Magazine around the time the book came out, and you made this comment, uh, what I'm looking at is whether there are elements within all religions that allow us to work to solve problems rather than using religion as a divisive issue. And I do believe there's enough commonality if we see religion as a practical way to solve problems. Can you elaborate on this? Well, first of all, people hold up the holy books and say the Old Testament has a lot of very bloody parts in it, or that the Quran advocates violence. And even the New Testament has some language in it that looks fairly grim. The bottom line, though, is, is that you can read the same book and find passages that are very similar about justice, loving your neighbor, charity. I mean, a lot of similar aspects in all the religions. And the question is, which side of it you hold up? There is a quote that Archbishop Tutu spoke at an event where I was, and he said, religion is like a knife. You can either pick it up and stick it into somebody's back or use it to slice bread. I think in many ways that also shows the duality of it. And if you're looking for finding the uh, blood-curdling parts. You can find them everywhere. But if you are trying to find the common ground, I know it's there. And we have, for, this is nothing new, but for centuries, decades, has tried to picture the other person's religion as not having the answers, whereas we should be looking in terms of what are some of the common answers that can be found. Season 2 of Shiftmakers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. Right now, one of the big stories that's on everyone's mind is about the BP oil spill, the biggest environmental disaster of this type in our lifetime. What is on your mind as this story unfolds? How do you feel about the political environmental effects of our dependency on fossil fuels? Well, first of all, I mean, this has been a long-standing issue. This is not something that just came up. There have been discussions now for, you know, the last 20 years that we have been overly dependent on fossil fuels and that, that we should be looking for renewable alternative sources. And it is something that we began to talk about in the Clinton administration, and clearly there have been a lot of attempts to try to explain why this is bad in terms of our national security policy and in terms of our health and in terms of what is really tragic is that there, for some people, I think this has not become clear until there's a terrible disaster like this. And I think everybody is completely mesmerized by the story because they see its effect, whether one is an environmentalist which many people are in terms of the damage to the ocean and the fish in the ocean, and then also the marshlands. And then if you are into jobs, 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 I was listening this morning to all the people in Louisiana who were affected by Katrina, who have gotten a second blow like this in terms of their livelihood. And then there is the larger issue of dependence on fossil fuels that are hard to come by and create this kind of potential for this kind of a tragedy. 
Well, in 1997, you were named the first female Secretary of State and became at that time the highest ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. As someone who broke the glass ceiling, what words of wisdom or advice do you have for women today? Well, first of all, that we have to work hard. There's no question. I have said this many times, that there seems to be enough room in the world for mediocre men, but not for mediocre women. We really have to work very, very hard. I think that it is also very important for women to help each other, that it's hard to be the only woman in the room. The support system of that is very important. I would always try to figure out, I had a group of women foreign ministers that were my friends throughout the world. And my little saying is that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. So I think that there has to be this sense that you, once you've climbed the ladder of success, that you don't push it away from the building. You're only strengthened if there are more women. But you have to work hard. There's no other way around it. There's no kind of way of talking your way into or out of things. You just have to deliver. And I know during your term as Secretary of State, you tried to bring women's issues more to the forefront. And there's still so many extreme examples of widespread oppression and violence happening to women and girls throughout the world. What changes do you think need to be made to improve the global situation for women and girls today? And it does seem like there's a growing awareness that this is interconnected with other issues, not just about helping women and girls. It's connected to a host of other issues that are affecting humanity. The reason I brought women's issues central to American foreign policy, not just because I was a feminist, but because we know that societies are more stable if women are politically and economically empowered. And women don't have trouble finding work, but they need to be valued and need to be part of a legal system. So I did it for a number of reasons, but it makes a difference. I have found it hard to just talk about women's issues. They're people issues. They are very central to how people treat each other. And in some ways, women are like the canary in the coal mine, that if women are treated badly, I mean, that certainly was true in Afghanistan, it shows what else is happening out there. And so I think that governments need to understand that the United States considers it important in terms of the way women are treated, that their societies will be better off if women are treated well. And I don't think that people should kind of think of women's issues as kind of auxiliary issues. They are central. I 100% agree with that. So this interview is going up on Huffington Post. Readers from all over the world you know, can potentially read it and make comments. Uh, the Internet breaks down all borders and helps educate people and provides instant news you know, 24 hours a day. How do you see the Internet in terms of affecting world change? I think amazing. I think I've been in a number of discussions recently in which people compare the Internet to the printing press. Such a massive change in how people get their information, how they absorb it. Most of it is good. Some of it is a little scary because it means that people are inundated with information and have to figure out how to analyze it and sort out what is and what isn't. But I think it is a revolution. There's just no question about it. And it is revolutionary in terms of what it does, but in terms of how it unites people. I'm going back in some of the questions you asked earlier and some of the cultural issues and some of the political issues. I mean, I, I think if people understand what happened through the blogs and Twitter in Iran, it is a major political issue. So it's across the board. It is massive. It is a revolution. Now, you have been out there for so many years, and you're so you know, outspoken and always so passionate about the causes that you work on. What is the source of all your energy and inspiration that just keeps driving you? 
Well, I have had and continue to have a pretty remarkable life in that I wasn't born in the United States. I came here when I was 11 years old, and for me, becoming an American was one of the life changes, and it made a difference. My driving force is that I want to make a difference, and that it took me quite a long time to develop a voice, and now that I have it, I'm not going to be silent. And I feel that I have been so blessed. It is incumbent on me to really get in there and help to make a difference for other people. And, you know, you, along with so many other distinguished world leaders, you know, continue to remain very active and engaged rather than retiring. I think in our society there's a sense we don't value the wisdom that our, you know, sort of older generations have to offer. What type of unique wisdom do you think our elders have to offer? And, you know, how do you feel about getting older? I don't like getting older, I have to tell you that. I had a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and what I have loved in my life is the intergenerational activities. I teach at Georgetown. It gives me an opportunity to stay very connected with the younger generation in terms of conveying information, but also getting information from them. I have always enjoyed having people of different ages around me. I have thought that was uh, fun. I do think that one needs to have respect for people that are older. I, I really do love the idea that one can respect generations. Do you have a particular like life philosophy or spiritual practice or anything that helps guide and sustain you? First of all, I get up every morning and I'm grateful for everything that has happened. I kind of go through my list about being grateful for my children and grandchildren and for the really remarkable life that I've been able to have. And I also really do think about the fact that every day counts. I believe that every individual counts, and so I believe that every day counts, and I try not to waste it. That doesn't mean that every day is great. I love being who I became, so to speak. I never expected to be who I was, am. I treasure the fact that I was Secretary of State. I'm incredibly grateful to President Clinton for having made me Secretary. And I think that having become that allows me to play a more important role that would never have occurred to me. So every day I try to figure out whether there's something I can do that will make a difference. And last question, what is your wish for the children of the future? That they are able to live in a clean, peaceful world. I, I do worry about uh, my grandchildren. I do. I have always believed that we are on an upward trajectory and that everything is for the best in this best of all possible world. Uh, I'm not a fatalist. I've just been reading War and Peace and Tolstoy is such a fatalist. I'm not a fatalist. I think that people can make a difference, but I, I do hope that their world turns out to be I can't say better than mine because I've had a wonderful time, but that it's not on a downward trajectory because I'm an optimist who worries a lot. There is no doubt that Madeleine Albright's transformative words, work, and imprint on history will continue to educate and inspire people of all generations and nationalities for many years to come. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. Shiftmakers was created by Marian Schnall, and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Limon. For more information about this podcast or our host Marianne Schnall, please visit marianneschnall.com.